Give it up for Jesus. Amen. How about we bless the Lord for this wonderful worship band as you're seated. Thank you, guys. Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 7. Somebody say, the world hates me. Look at your neighbor. Say, the world really hates you. I'm kidding. Not really. Just, just enough. How many know sometimes there's some haters, but then there's some real haters that get on your nerves? There's people who push it to the next level. I can see Jason having haters, but he don't have haters like me. I think his haters are kind of like, like, like low-key haters. I get ones that threaten me. You ever been threatened, brother? And you have? Come on. Then that must mean you shine and bright for Jesus. Amen. You know, uh, I tease that way, but sometimes we think Christian persecution in America is not real persecution, but it is. It's real persecution. Now, I would not say it's the same as what happens in Iran, in the Middle East, and in different communist countries like North Korea, but we're persecuted here as a Christian group. If you have not suffered yet Christian persecution, then I would challenge you to, to really look at your life. Have you preached the gospel? Because if you're going to go out and preach the gospel, I believe you'll start to feel the weight of Christian persecution. We talked last week from this passage. I want to go back into it because I want you to understand that the world could hate in the right way if they went about it through God's purpose and plan for hate. Because don't you know that hate comes from God? Did you not know that? See, sometimes we think of the word hate as something that comes from the devil, and all that God has is love. But that's not true. The Bible says that God hates. And so hate is actually an attribute of God. God hates things. And so I want to talk about that today and how the world twists what they consider to be a righteous hatred. They twist what they think to be a just cause, and they actually have hatred wrong. And so they have the wrong kind of hatred. How many know the world has the wrong kind of a lot of stuff? How many know they have the wrong kind of sex? <laughs> they have the wrong kind of mindset when it comes to money. They, the, see, the world will take anything, and we were of the world before we were born again, so let's just be honest with what we used to be like. Come on, can I get an amen? Let's just be honest here. See, a perversion is diverting from the original version. And what I want to talk to you today about is what the world should be hating instead of us. But I have to work the word to get you there. But last week we went over this passage. We went into some details that many of you might have not been familiar with. So I won't go into that today. But by God's grace, I want to teach you how to properly hate and then to love your haters. Can I get an amen for that? Come on, I want you to think about what's before you right now. I'm going to teach you how to really hate. Because, you see, the world doesn't hate the right way, just like they don't have sex the right way, just like they don't spend their money the right way, just like they don't understand what a family is, and we were all in that mindset before. Uh, they, they twist and pervert because that's what Satan does. He's not a creator, but he is a perverter. He doesn't create things ex nihilo, out of nothing, as God does. He perverts what God has. Are you with me in John chapter 7? I hope that I got your attention. Now look at verse 1. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go into Judea because the Jews or the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee. Somebody say, leave Galilee. Yeah. See, they're telling him what to do. Leave Galilee and go to Judea. 
so that your disciples may see the works that you do. Verse 4, no one who wants to become public or a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. Somebody say, show yourself. You see, that's the devil from beginning to end. He always wants you to prove it. He wants you to put God into a test that God said you're not supposed to put him in. Just like with Jesus in the temptation, you know, if you're the son of God, prove it. Jump off this mountain. You know, angels are going to catch you. You know, uh, all of these things, he's about making us feel inadequate in ourselves. So the, the brothers here being used of the devil says, since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Verse 6, therefore Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. Somebody say, for you, any time will do. You see, for the world, they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. Because for them, any time will do. They're not waiting for the Father. They're not waiting for what God is saying. They're going to the club and they're going to get what they want. Come on, can I get an amen? I know y'all weren't there last night, but somebody was, maybe your friend. But, but they're going to go there, and they're going to get what they want. They're not waiting for the Lord. Financial blessings, they're not waiting for the Lord. If the boss says, come in on Sunday, that, that's, all they, that's all they need. Any time will do for the world. Y'all tracking with me here? Come on, help me preach this morning. Amen. For my time is not yet here. See, God, I wish I could just preach on that, on God's timing. That's a whole nother sermon. See, Jesus says, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. That will help you in life. That's a sermon within a sermon. Every one of us here needs to track with God in his plan for our families, our finances, all of the things in between to track with God in his timing. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. Just want to encourage you there. My time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. Verse 7, would you highlight this, please? Let's read this together on the count of three. One, two, three. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. Now, we spent a lot of time discussing this last week, and I'm going to get into it a little bit this week, but I'm going to twist it to talk about those things I mentioned before about how the world has hate all backwards, and that if they got on God's plan, they would really know what to hate. But Jesus said to them, the world can't hate you, talking to his brothers, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the testiful. I am not yet, King James Version there, I am not yet going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, verse 10, after his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret, now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Verse 12, among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leader. Somebody say fear of man. Thank you. Now, going back up to the beginning here, just want to review what's happening in this passage and then allow the Lord, the Lord to lead us here into this message that God has uh, given to me. Somebody say, the world hates me. Come on, say it again. The world hates me. Now, let me explain why the world hated Jesus. The world hated Jesus because Jesus testified that their deeds were evil. The world did not hate Jesus because Jesus was a jerk to the world. He wasn't rude to them. It wasn't because Jesus was looking for ways to offend them. Jesus wasn't the shock jock of, of that time. Jesus' words offended the Jewish people and i.e. the world as a whole because he told them about their sin. 
Now, when we look at the scriptures, we can clearly see that if Jesus was hated by the world, what do you think they're going to do to us when we tell them that their deeds are evil? Now, I always say this to my friends that get upset with me for causing so much trouble on Facebook and different things. I put them on the spot and I say, will you say it then? Tell us on Facebook homosexuality is a sin different than the way I just said it. But you see, they don't want to do it. See, they can't testify that the world is evil. Why? Because they got the same problem that the people have at the bottom of this passage, the fear of man. I was listening to Judah Smith's wife on a live pod podcast on YouTube being asked what she thought about abortion. Judah Smith is the pastor of Justin Bieber out of Seattle, friends with the who's who in the charismatic zoo. And when asked about abortion, she rambled on something that you might hear from Oprah Winfrey. There's two sides to the struggle. We've got to understand this. And, you know, there's a lot of pain on both sides and this and that. All she was basically saying is, I don't want to offend the murderers. That's all she was simply saying. I don't want to offend murderers. Murderers who are weeping that they can't kill their children. I don't want to offend them. So let me make sure I walk on eggshells. And then the world... You're deep, sister. Oh, one, one person put up a post and said, Oh, my pastor said it so good. He made sure not to offend anybody. No, 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 no. Your, your pastor's not a good pastor. Your pastor's good at being a politician. Your pastor's good at being lukewarm. Your pastor's not good at being a man of God. Your pastor's good at being a man pleaser. Because you've got to testify that people's works are evil. When that came out with George Floyd and the video came out, did, did people here, did we walk both sides and try to say, well, you know, sometimes you got to kneel on somebody's back for seven minutes. Sometimes, you know, police have the right to just kill people. No, we came right out. God as my witness and so is Facebook. That man was done wrong. That was murder. These police should be held accountable for such a thing. Did Christians in this church specifically have a problem with calling out murder? Come on. Now, now uh, people saw a video. They, within 24 hours, I went back and checked on my friends. <laughs> Look at your neighbor and say, Pastor's a little messy. I went and checked on my friends. I went to their timeline. The day the media released the George Floyd footage, they made a decision to call out murderers. Murderers! The police are murderers. And I was right there with them. I, I saw it first on Calvin's post, and I was right there. You were the first one to introduce me to everything that came after that. And Calvin was one of the people during the BLM riots at Nini's that they were called everything but a sanctified African-American. But he was the first one to put it out and say it's murder. We shouldn't stand for something like this. So I went and checked on my Christian friends, and, and they testified that's murder, okay? They testified. But when Roe v. Wade got overturned, no testimony, no, no affirmation. It was quiet. Come on, somebody. It was quiet on that Facebook. They didn't have nothing to say. And yet we've seen video after video of what it looks like when the forceps go up in there and grind out the body into pieces to suck it out with a vacuum cleaner.
And they couldn't testify about it being evil. I understand there's a lot of evils in the world. And sometimes, Christians, we can get on our soapboxes and we can forsake other evils. I get it. People talk about, you know, homosexuality, but they won't talk about gossip. Can I get an amen in this church? People will talk about people shacking up and living in sin, but they won't talk about bitterness. Okay, I understand that there's some things that churches and Christians will decide to testify on and other things to to leave alone, you know. They'll put that stuff in the closet, leave that. I understand that. But let's just be honest. The church as a whole in America doesn't really have a testimony about evil. We don't know how to say it without trying to make everybody happy. At some point, you just got to say this is evil. Jesus was having a discussion with his brothers. Now, we talked about this. Mary had other children. She, she was not a perpetual virgin. We, uh, virgin. we went into that, okay? So he's ha- hanging out at his house. These brothers, they're beginning to, you know, kind of mock him. And they're saying, if you're really the son of God and you're really all of this, why don't you go show your disciples, you know, who you really are? Go to this festival. Why don't you show off, you know, at the taste of Chicago? Why don't you get a crowd to come around you? Right? Like, that was their plan to make him look stupid. And Jesus said, hold on, you don't understand this. I'm not going to let you play me like that because I follow God's plan to do the thing. Come on, somebody say God's plan. And that's why when it came to conservatism and those that I was hanging around and even my wife got caught into this and I just want to be honest with you and she kept saying after Biden became president and all of these things and conspiracies were out she was following these different prophets and she said oh they know something they know the election's going to get overturned and this thing's going to happen and, and the National Guard and you all looking at me like you didn't hear any of this some of y'all were sharing some of this stuff oh and the National Guard they're going to come and all this that and if you remember come on somebody what did I say to this church I said we're not about that I said I've always been about the freedom to protest but we're not about rioting I said I'm not falling for all these conspiracies telling you that you're going to take over the White House and all of that and yet people went over there January 6th stormed the White House Make fools of themselves. You know the biggest fool with his antler horns or whatever. You know that guy. They, you know, they took full advantage. But here was the thing. The world got what they wanted. Look at you dum-dums. Look at you dum-dums. Now, you know when they reported on the protest, it was something different. These people are traumatized. That's why they're stealing Nikes. <laughs> they... They, they, they have post-traumatic syndrome. They've been through so much. That's why they're carjacking you. <laughs> you know? Let them carjack you and give them some Prozac. They're just traumatized, you know. Oh, but when it came to people storming the White House, oh, you couldn't go to the trauma of being locked up, losing your job and all that. No, no, no. No, these, these were revolutionaries coming to kill Pelosi. And yet, once again, where was I? Evil. I don't believe we changed the United States of America by storming the White House. So what am I trying to say? I'm an equal offender. Conservative people get mad at me when I call what they do evil. Evil. And when the liberal or when the worldly do evil, I call it evil. 
That's why I'm still not getting called on a lot of the conservative stations because I'm not here to try to dance their dance and be the next, you know, shock jock for conservatism. I'm here to preach the gospel. I'm here to win souls for Jesus. I'm not getting caught up in any one of your agendas in Jesus' name. Can I hear an amen? So don't let the world try to get you to expose yourself. Well, if you're really a Christian, Jason, why don't you just shout it out right now? We're all going to hell. Come on, let's get him to do it. So that when he shouts out, y'all going to hell and gets fired, now we can get one of our transgender friends in there now. No, I'm not letting you play me like that. Any time will do for you. But for me, I do what the Father says. If God wants me on the job to stay there and to keep my mouth shut and just do what I'm there to do, I will pray that God will open that door for me to preach once that clock hits 3, 4 o'clock, and then I meet you for lunch or for a dinner. But you're not going to get me to lose my job by acting like a fool so you can prove that I, I, or that I can prove to you I'm really a Christian. Can I hear an amen? See, that's what the world will have you do. Well, prove it then. I don't have to prove it to them. Jesus doesn't have to prove it to them. This is what we do as Christians. We testify that the works are evil, and we do it as God tells us to do it. God didn't tell Jesus to go that day with his brothers to that festival and then say, everyone here is of the synagogue of Satan. I'm going to send fire and destroy, or the Romans to destroy this temple. Judgment is coming. No, no, the Father didn't say that. So Jesus stayed right where he was at. And I want you to have peace about what you're called to do. The Bible says, be as wise as serpents, but as harmless as doves. Do not let a world that has something against you push you into a place where you're going outside of the will of God. Now, when it's time for you to make a Daniel stand, you make your Daniel stand. When they come looking for you and they put you on the spot and they start saying, well, if you're really a Christian, you'll do X, Y, and Z. Otherwise, you're not a Christian. Well, then you've got to pray. You've got to do what Daniel did. You've got to stand your ground. But don't put yourself out there to try to prove it to them that you can be that wild and crazy. Can I hear an amen? I remember talking to some folks. They were wanting to rent some U-Hauls, shut down major cities, do protests all in the name of Jesus. And I said, I ain't about that. That's not what I'm about. What I will do is go in secret, as Jesus did, and show up at Pulaski and Madison and do the real work of BLM. Amen? I will show that Black Lives Matter as I feed the one that's on fentanyl with their back lowered. That's how I'm going to show that your life matters to me. I'll be on the west side right here. I don't need to form another protest to show you how much I care about the black community, Latino community, etc. I'm going to go out in secret. Would you scroll down so that you can see it? So they said, don't do it in secret. But then Jesus came out. Go to verse 10, please. Jesus came out on his own after he let the brothers left he didn't go out publicly but he went in what secret see the bible says when you give and you do your things of charity don't even let your right hand know what your left hand is doing what you doing over here right hand well none of your business i'm just over here you know I'm not trying to put it on Facebook and, and make it look grandiose. I'm not trying to impress another church or another politician. We're going to go out and do the work of the ministry 
and we're going to testify about the works of this world being evil, but we're not doing it as a show. We're doing it out of love and compassion, whether anybody knows or not. Because the person that we're serving, the person that we're touching, the person that we're loving, that person knows. Joe, how much do you care about the West Side? That's none of your business. I care a lot about it, but I don't have to prove it to you. I remember being out there one time. I can't remember who these people were, but they were picking up trash in the community. Okay? And let's say they look more like me than they look like the community, if you know what I'm saying. Okay? On the West Side. So there are a lot of Anglos coming out there to pick up garbage, right? And they see us out there preaching. And you know, you know what they said to us? Well, why aren't you doing anything other than preaching? You see, we're actually doing something for the community. We're picking up the garbage. And I'm thinking to myself, number one, Deborah. <laughs> number one, Dylan. I've been out here for over 20 years. <laughs> you just showed up, okay, number one. Number two, we do pick up the trash. We're just not doing it right now. And we give out groceries, and we give out bicycles, and we take children to camp. But here's the thing. It's not my job. It's not my job, Fletcher, to try to convince you of what I'm doing. But you see, that's how the world will put you on the spot. The world will put you on the spot to be like, well, why don't you virtue signal like how I virtue signal? Why don't you show it like how I show it? And we don't have to do that. People ask us all the time, well, what do you do for the, the people who are already born since you're pro-life? What do you do? None of your business would I do. Because if I stood against murder for the sake of standing against murder, that alone is a righteous cause. But if you really want to know what I do, we adopt, we take in, we care, we support orphanages, we bring in single moms, we do all of that and then some. Have you ever heard of Christian charities? But you see how they try to use it against you to shut you down. But, but if you were really caring, you would announce it before everybody. You mean, you mean everyone here who takes care of foster children should announce it every single week on Facebook when they're making stances against murder? And by the way, I've adopted four children. I'm in the foster care. Like that's how we should present our argument. Do you see the world doesn't have a way to bring about change in a real lasting way. Even the change they're trying to bring about, the things that we would agree with the, the world on, say taking care of the underprivileged, helping people get off drugs, solving immigration issues, Medicare or, or medical help for all or affordable things like that. And, you know, all of these points that all of us here would probably just agree upon, we still don't do it the same way. In other words, the Christian does it best when they do it for God first. When I look into the issues of what's going on in the world, even though I'll testify about the evils, sex trafficking and so forth, I don't do it in the way to virtue signal or to get someone to look at me and see how great I am. I do it so that Jesus will be pleased and that Jesus gets the glory because those who are suffering matter to Jesus first and foremost. That's why when I preached about BLM and they announced that they were Marxists, the first thing that I said to a Marxist in your own worldview, why do black lives matter at all? 
Why do any lives matter to a Marxist? Part of Marxism is a denial of God. The moment you deny God and you take on the worldview, the lens, the framework that we come from the goo through the zoo to you by unguided processes, life no longer has any value. So why does anybody's life matter, let alone a person with a different melanin count? You know, why, why would anybody's life matter? We're all just walking around goo. We're just moist robots, chemicals reacting, dust on a planet that looks like dust in the galaxies of the universe. Can I hear an amen to holding people accountable to their own worldview? You see, the reason why anybody matters to a Christian is because God says we're made in the image of God. That's why we don't look at humans as we look at animals. We don't think of humans as bacteria. And when people say in the abortion issue, well, it's just a clump of cells. Baby, I'm a clump of cells. You're a clump of cells. What are you, a clump of magnesium or something? You know, are you a clump of iron? You're cells. That's what you are. That's what we all are. But you see, reductionism says that's all we are. Well, then, that's all you are now. Let's put you in the blender then. Because if, if, if it's okay just to do it to a clump of cells, take the image of God out of you. Take out the belief that you have a soul and that you have intrinsic value made by your creator, one race, the human race. Take that out. We could blend up your clump of cells. You see, but the world doesn't think rationally. That's why the Bible says they're fools. And we don't mean it like in a, a way to put them down. We mean it like Mr. T said it. I pity the fool. Because the fool don't know what they don't know. But they act like they do know. And then they go out into their world and they adopt vi a vision for the world. And when the world turns out busted and disgusted, they blame everybody else except their own folly. We as Christians, we have an answer like Jesus. And what we're doing may seem like it's in secret, because we, the true body of Christ, is not publicizing it. We're not going around like the Pope. We're not trying to have big conferences. Most good churches aren't known in that way, have a spotlight on them. They're not the first ones that Oprah calls for the interviews. Most good churches are somewhere between 50 to 100 people. They're pastored by a person that loves and cares for them, doesn't get rich off of them, and is serving in that community. Those are most of the people I went to Bible college with. I could call them all up right now by name. I could get Pete Payne on the phone, a precious pastor of Michigan that's had to work a second job since COVID because it's been hard for his people in that small town to get by and keep him as a full-time pastor, but yet he's still pastoring them. I could get Pastor Jerry and others. I could get other men and women, Pastor Troy of New Orleans. I could get other pastors here of mid-sized churches married to one woman, not stealing any money, loving the community, but the world would say that's not public enough. That's public enough for Jesus. That's public enough for the communities that they're touching because that's the business of God. The business of God is not to do it for everybody to see. The business of God is to do it for him to see and the ones that you're touching. Now, when it comes to being a city on a hill, a light and a testimony, obviously I want to share the testimony. So when I say it's none of their business, what I just mean is the rebuke of Jesus. Like I don't have to prove it to you. But if you really cared and you wanted to learn what we do, then come alongside. And I'd love to testify. 
I would love to testify about what God is doing in this church and what he's doing in our lives and in our families. And most of the time when I start testifying, they get bored after the second or third one. And I go, I just started. I got a hundred more to go. Talk about helping people and giving away all that we, we can to serve communities and to love and to sacrifice. This church, let me just say it right now, has impressed me at every, every step of the way at what we do to the capacity that we can do it as. God's not expecting you to give away a million dollars if you don't have it, but what you have, he, he wants you to give away as much as you can to according to the purpose he's called you to. He doesn't want you to give away your rent money. He doesn't want you to give away your gas money. You know, maybe he could in a certain situation, but you get my point. I think God wants us to have more than enough so that more than enough can go to others and to serve them. Testify just quickly here before I get into the sermon. Everybody say, this is the introduction. Haven't even got to the sermon yet. Trust me. Just scroll down so they can see it. The sermon is about seven points right here. Scroll down a little bit. Yeah, that's the sermon right there. We're getting to that. Amen? Y'all, y'all going to stick around for the sermon? Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Just scroll back. They ain't ready for it yet, though. They, they say they're ready, but I got to help them. No, I'm half kidding here. When I think about this church, I think about the generosity of those who come here and serve and volunteer. We had a brother here. Just a few uh, months ago, Pastor Ray of the Philippines, and uh, he was talking about how they had gone through, I believe, a tsunami or a hurricane, one of those things where it got a lot of wind and rain, and there was damage done to those churches. And we as a church, we always keep money on hand in, in a mission fund so that when these situations happen, we can go above and beyond our monthly giving. So when he had presented it uh, to us, I already knew as a church, okay, the budget, we have this much to give. But then there was that much remaining to whatever need he had mentioned. I think he had said it was going to cost around $5,000 or something. And I knew in the mission fund we could give like 2000 And we presented it to this church. Not only did individuals give... But a person walked up to me and said, I just want to clear out the rest of it so that now you know it's done and whatever the other people give is just going to go on top of that. See, that's the kind of church that we're a part of in Jesus' name. See, people that when they have it and they can meet the need, they just give it. We have a good Samaritan page. See, I'm not trying to boast now, am I? But I'm just telling you how to get involved in that which is being done in secret because we don't talk about it and try to brag about it. We just go out and do it. But we have a good Samaritan page on Facebook. Instead of having garage sales, we give it away for free. And how many are getting that blessing of the Lord as you're being a blessing to others? Now, you could have put that toaster in your garage sale, but aren't you glad you gave it away? Because I think garage sales are of the devil. I do. I had, I'm half kidding here, but I think they're of the devil. You buy all this stuff until you have so much you can't fit it in your house, and then you have to put it in your garage, and then now you want more money for it so you can go buy other stuff to put in your house so that you can't fit it all in to put it back in your garage. Why don't you just give it away in Jesus' name? Give away that old Elmo crib, amen? Give away that old dress that you don't fit it. Just give it away. Watch what God will do in your life, amen? And then God will take you to another level. He'll begin to bless you to be a blessing. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Now let's go to the message today. I think you're ready. Everybody says the world hates me because they don't know what they're doing. Come on. See, this is what I want to highlight here. I didn't have to do this. This was something special that the Lord did in my heart because I feel now the burden has been released from this passage. And as, as you know, in the first service, we're going verse by verse through the book of John. Second service is, uh, you know, whatever the Lord gives me of that time and that week that I'm preaching uh, spontaneous. 
But this, I believe we've covered it. But there was something that the Lord pulled out of me personally in this passage. And I don't know if you saw it there. And that is that he said the world cannot hate you because you are like the world. They only hate me because I testify about them. And, and, and if you read that, you're probably just thinking, well, man, hate is wrong to begin with. But you see, God pulls something out. And I wanted to see if you saw that there. That Jesus wasn't upset about the hate. He, he wasn't saying, like, they're not supposed to hate nobody. They didn't hate anything. They're just supposed to get along and trust me. See, Jesus wasn't a cult leader trying to love bomb people to convince them by manipulation to follow them, uh, to follow him. See, Jesus was the kind of person that he could live with all the expressions of humanity and not be intimidated by it. Go with me to Ecclesiastes 3, verse 8. In other words, Jesus didn't have a problem with hate. He had a problem with who they were hating. And who they were hating was him. They were supposed to be hating someone else. They were supposed to be upset at someone else. Who do you think they were supposed to hate? How about the devil? How about the devil? You see, the world gets upset at God when they should be upset at the devil. Oh, man, I just got to preach this right now. I can just tell by your reactions I got to preach it a little bit. I've given this illustration because I believe it so describes what happens in the world. It's a trivial, childish demonstration, but it's really packing a lot of truth in it. I don't know about you, but I've grown up around some teasers and some slick ricks and people who play around. Anybody ever been around people who just play around and tease and act silly all the time? Okay, so I grew up around people like that. Uh, I, was, I was in a generation where dudes would slap dudes' butts, not out of sexual tension, but to mess with each other. Wet willies. Anybody know about wet willies and pink bellies and things like that? I don't know. We used to be crazy, I guess, in my neighborhood because half of you with me, half of you are not. Pray for us, right? We got childhood trauma, but when we were kids, when I grew up, we drank out of faucets and uh, public, you know, water hose, uh, you know, faucets on the what it, drinking fountain, and we drank, we drank out the hose. You know what I'm saying? That's how we were. We got dirty. We stayed out late. Come home and the lights are off. That's how I grew up. Right? I got some people saying amen here. Thank you. Well, one of the one of the kind of things that one of your friends might have done is if y'all were in line to do something and everybody was focused on what was in front of them, he might have came alongside of you and slapped the person's head in front of you. See, I had friends that would do that kind of thing. So I would be sitting, you know, I'd be here, you know, getting in the lunch line, and here's Dave in front of me, and then here comes my friend Matt, and he reaches around me, slaps Dave right upside his head, and I'm just sitting here looking at Dave, and Dave all of a sudden gets mad at me, pushes me, you know, and I can't just let him push me. Now we got to get into a little thing going on here because I don't have time to explain to him everything that happened because I now have to defend my manhood because you're just not going to push me. You know, I got to explain this to you in fists and wrestling now. And then when you get up and you're like, dude, I didn't even slap you. That wasn't even me, man. That was Matt. Matt slapped you. Matt did that to you. You see, that's what the devil's like. You see, we're close to Jesus in a sense like we all know that there's something about Jesus that's different. We're all drawn to him. And the Bible says he's reaching out to every one of us. And even unbelievers are having conversations with him. They haven't been born again yet. But even unbelievers, I believe, lay at, in their bed at night when they're talking to God. I believe many of those prayers are directed to what we consider the God of the Bible. I just heard a testimony about a Muslim woman who said she never saw that God in a way she could talk to and have a conversation with. So she ditched the 
the God of Islam and just sort of talking to God as if he was a friend or a father before she even read the Bible and knew that he would be the closest friend, friend closer than a brother and a father. And she began to do that. And from there, she saw dreams and visions of Jesus. Okay. So I believe like, like Jesus is the closest in proximity to us. But the devil comes around and slaps us. The devil comes around and does something wicked to us. And we turn and say, who slapped me? And here's Jesus looking right at us. Here's Jesus with his heart of love. And then we attack Jesus. When I was a young person, I used to make fun of Christians. I used to call up the prayer hotlines and pretend I had a devil and I needed to be cast out. These prayer hotlines, I would mess with them. I would sell drugs in the church parking lot. I'm being honest with you. I'm not saying that I'm proud of my sinful ways, but I was a wicked church kid. And I said, you know what? Because look at all the evil in the world. Look at all these hypocrites. And all I kept doing was putting it on Jesus. And I was hating religious people, and I was hating that televangelist, and I was hating this and hating that. But what was I really supposed to be hating? I was supposed to hate the devil, the one who came to steal, kill, and destroy. The brothers in the story of Jesus should have been hating the devil, calling the devil out. Have you ever thought about what people say when they stub their toe? Why don't they say, oh, Hitler? Oh, Hitler. Why, don't, why do they say the most precious name given to man, Jesus Christ? Why do they call out my Lord and Savior? Why don't they call out, you know, Adolf Hitler? Why don't they call out Jeffrey Dahmer? They call out our Lord and Savior. Why? Because he's the closest one. And they want to take out their pain on the one that's there. But it's not the one that's there that's causing the pain. Yeah, there's a lot of problems in the world. But there's a big solution to the problem, and his name is Jesus. He's the problem solver. Amen? And so the devil's got us hating the wrong thing. I remember standing in front of the abortion clinics, and I'm looking at their eyes, and they're just checked out, and, and they're treating us as if we are the, the idiots, that we are the, the ones that don't have it right. And I'm looking at them, and I'm saying, you're on the wrong side of justice. You're on the wrong side of this issue. You should be upset with something, but you shouldn't be upset with me. You should be upset with the doctor in there that's tearing out a baby. But they got it twisted. But look at what Ecclesiastes says. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 8. A time to love and a time to hate. Now, husbands and wives, don't look at each other right now. Don't look at each other. Just keep looking at me. <laughs> Some married folk know exactly what I'm talking about. Go back and forth from love and hate sometimes. But it's, it's true. There is a time to love and there is a time to hate. That's Bible. I know sometimes people see it just as the old covenant. No, the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So now there's not a time for that? There's not a time for war? There's not a time for peace? Just go up a little bit more. There's not a time for the rest of these things here? There's not a time to search, a time to give up? Like which one of these things went away when the new covenant came? You, you don't weep anymore? You don't laugh? There's not a time for either one of those? There's not a time to gather stones, a time to tear them down? I mean, all of these things are a part of the human race, the experience. And so all of these things God gives us permission to do, but it's whether or not we're doing them the right way. Yeah, there is a time to scatter stones, and there's a time to gather stones. Well, you don't just come right here and start scattering stones, right? Like we're in this building, but if this building 
had issues and we were outside of the building, you could demolish it and build a new building. How many think that's a good thing? But you see, the world gets it twisted. If we were just looking at the idea of, of scattering versus gathering, the world, the sinner, is the kind of person that destroys the building with everybody in it. See, they don't have it the right way. They're doing it the opposite way. Instead of causing or bringing about good change, they're bringing about more harm. As one person said, you can't clean yourself with dirty hands. And the world's got dirty hands trying to wash one another. If my hands are dirty, how can I wash you if you're, I can get the dirt off you? In other words, if I have AIDS, how can I give you a blood transfusion to help you if you got AIDS? You see, if we're all sick, how can we get healed? We need to have a point of reformation of the soul. We need a rebirth. In other words, we have to be changed and saved. That's what the Bible's talking about. You continue on here, a time to be silent, a time to speak, and then it says a time to love and a time to hate. What should the brothers have been doing with Jesus in that room? Instead of mocking Jesus, instead of hating on Jesus, they should have been what? Loving Jesus. See, what is the world doing right now with Jesus? They're hating him. They're hating the cure to their disease. They're hating the solution to their problems. Can you see it? I'm just asking you, can you see it? Yes or no, saints? They're hating the very one they ought to be loving. And then what about the one they're supposed to be hating? What are they doing? Give me a big old hug. Come on, Satan, man. Long time no see, man. You're the best. I remember hanging out with you, man. You're so much fun. They're loving on the devil. They are literally, think about this, calling evil good, as one prophet said. Looking at an abortion, just taking some hot topics here, looking at an abortion going, that's good. And I'll cry and throw a fit if I can't do that anymore. It's literally saying to the devil, I love what you're about. The Bible says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus said, I came to give life. What does abortion do? Steals, kills, and destroys. Steals a purpose, kills a life, destroys a destiny. What does Jesus do? Give life to that child and more abundant. Have you ever seen the stages of development of a child? I've had six of them. And when my wife and I are at different stages, we'll look it up, 15 weeks, 14 weeks, whatever. And it's amazing. It's a miracle. You and I, I mean, let's just stop right here and just think about life and how beautiful it is. You and I, all of us in this room, could stop what we are doing right now as an occupation, all take up biology, And to understand the human life, all of us become PhDs, studying now from this point the rest of our lives and still only know a thimbleful of the Lake Michigan-sized knowledge of what's happening inside of that womb. Let's just be honest. We don't even understand how the brain is forming and functioning after we have scanned it. We've done every possible thing with it. We're still trying to understand the interaction between the brain and the body and consciousness. We still don't understand why the cells hold together the way that they do. We have uh, all, all of these beautiful, marvelous things to study about life. And yet the best solution we can come up to with poverty, the best solution we can come up with to solve the problem of poverty is to kill the child. My friends, there's a time to love and to hate. And it's not time to hate unborn children. It's time to love them. And it's time to hate poverty, hate sin, hate murder, hate sex trafficking, and do something about that in Jesus' name. Amen?
Which, by the way, I might live in a closed bubble, but most of the people I know doing those things are Christians, working in the foster care program, doing all that. And I know there's others that are there, but the ones that I know lead these organizations, bringing in the halfway homes, the, the family uh, help and all of that is, is Christians. So when somebody says, I haven't seen a Christian do it, I can see maybe you don't see Christians do it enough. And granted, we all need to do more. But the ones that I know do it are, are, are Christians. Like in other words, when you just see uh, uh, Buddy, Buddy the Elf from uh, the, the movie Elf, when he was dropped off as, as an orphan, was he dropped off at the Atheist Association? <laughs> he was dropped off at the Catholic Church. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why Christians have been known for having orphanages over the years. When you think of Mother Teresa, what was Mother Teresa doing? You know what I'm saying? Like, and what was she according to her religion? A Christian. Can I hear somebody say a Christian? She might have had some things wrong with Mary and all that, but she at least understood the Bible, right? Okay, and then when we think of the person who did the most for civil rights, what was he, a Buddhist, or was he a reverend? So Christianity has been pretty good at helping people when we follow the Bible. Now, when someone says, when you don't follow the Bible, you don't do it well, that's where we say, amen. And we actually agree with anybody that hates it when Christians don't follow the Bible. We agree with you. When slave owners owned people and they called that the Bible, those people were going to hell, according to 2 Timothy, where slave traders go to hell, the same place where those go who murder their parents. Timothy said that. To Paul said that to Timothy. Can I hear an amen? amen? So we agree with you. We call out evil in the church, and we hate evil wherever we find it. And so you have to have this in your heart, that if you truly love things, you're also going to hate things. Let's go back to our notes. Because that's an emotion of God. Go to Proverbs chapter, well, we read that one. Let's go to Revelation 2.6. God hates wickedness. You see, you'll discover what you love in life by what you hate. Did I, can I get an amen? I said, you'll discover what you love in life by what you hate. Think about some of the things that make you mad in life. The opposite of that is what you love. You hate divorce. You hate men cheating on you, ladies. Then what do you really love? You love marriage. You love camaraderie. That's why some of these women have played themselves, and I love it. And I hope they just come all the way over to the gospel. Some women are like, well, now that this has been overturned, I'm only having sex with one man, and y'all better be down for life because I'm not playing around with this baby if I get pregnant. And, it, and it's like, it sounds like you're talking about marriage now. <laughs> that sounds like what you're talking about. That's what we've been talking about for quite a while. That's what we've been saying. Why don't you wait till you do it, you know, and then you can raise that child, and you can have a happy home, praise God. And I'm not saying every person that stays married is happy, but I'm saying that's the path to happiness. Marriage, doing it without it, you'll for sure not reach it. But if you want to be happy in your sexuality, put marriage as one of your goals. Amen? I said put marriage as one of your goals. Come on. Here's Jesus speaking, red letters, New Testament. Because sometimes people think Jesus just didn't have his coffee in the Old Testament. He's just waking up. Jesus just waking up in human history. He says, man, I don't want to burn this Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm mad. But now I'm loving the LGBT lifestyle. No, Jesus is Jesus. Amen? I, have I not showed you that Jesus is the one going to Sodom and Gomorrah with the three angels? Right? The two angels go and he stands outside and he brings down the hellfire. It says The Bible says uh, the Lord rained down fire from the Lord in heaven. The two persons known as the Lord, Jesus, Father, Son. Amen? Okay, so we know this. So this is New Testament. It says, but you have this in your favor. Jesus judging the church, telling them what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. He says, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, the church was doing right when they hated stuff. And, and if I put things in here that the culture gave me the hall pass on, they would agree with me. 
And this is what it's like as a preacher, by the way. Can I just show this to you right here? This is what it's like as a preacher. Most Christians wait for Jimmy Fallon to hand them the hall pass about what they can be mad about. So Jimmy Fallon tells them, and Jimmy Kimmel, you know, all these late-night talk show hosts, Bill Maher, whatever, tells them what they can be mad about. Oh, I can be mad about racism now? Well, racism is so bad, and we hate it around here, because they got the hall pass on that, right? But you can't hate abortion because you didn't get the hall pass. You see? You didn't get the hall pass. So they don't, they don't talk on it because they didn't get the whole pass. See, but this is where, this is where I get what I hate, right from, right from here. Amen? Somebody say right here. So what do you hate? I hate the practices of the LGBTQ. I hate the practices of it. I hate the practices of abortionists. I hate the practices of Muslims. I hate the practices of uh, superstitious Roman Catholics. I hate the practices of morons. I mean Mormons. I hate the practices of Jehovah Witnesses. I'll be, you, you want me to go on? Let me just go on a little bit more. I hate divorce. I hate corruption. I hate greed. I hate what politicians do. You know what I'm saying? I, I mean, I'll be here all day. Now, what does that mean? What, what have I told you a lot of and what I hate? That I love purity. That I love holiness. That I love a man and a woman in marriage. That I love families. That I love life. You see? By what you hate, you can tell a lot about what you love. I hate violence because I love peace. How many today would love to go to every park in Chicago and be able to sit out there and not have to worry about what's going on? Amen? Y'all ain't clapping. You Chicagoans are already used to it. I can tell. They're used to it, sister, because I wasn't. I, I was from the suburbs of Indiana, and then I moved to New Orleans. And I'll tell you what, this is way more crazier than New Orleans, okay? It's not like the block is hot. That was New Orleans. The block is hot. The block is hot. That was from New Orleans, y'all. But anyways, the block is hot was New Orleans. The city is hot in Chicago. The city is hot in Chicago. Y'all, let me tell you something. So uh, I'm new here, and I look at the lakefront, and I'm like, man, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. I say to my wife, I hadn't really been there much. Uh, you know, I said to my wife, uh, we had just been married a few months, so I probably only been in the city about six months at this time. And you got to remember, I came in March, so I went through, you know, last bit of winter there and then into spring. So, so now it's, you know, it's, it's, it's nice out and everything. And I, I say to her, we got to go to the lakefront. We got to walk around down here. Be worst decision. Around 8 o'clock at night, whoop, whoop, whistling going on. I'm like, all right, whatever's going on is not towards us. But that group just kept walking towards me. I am telling you the God's honest truth, Chicagoans. I thought I could walk your lakefront at 8 o'clock at night, sun setting. And then all of a sudden, you know what I see? I see a 40-ounce coming out the side of where the group is, boom, 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 right at us. They threw a 40-ounce at us. I said, baby, it's time to run. So we just started jogging, and we just jogged right out of the lakefront. Uh, I was at Montrose Beach. So somebody told me one day that was a gang out there, some gang at Montrose Beach. That was, that was what they staked out. But you see, I hate violence. Why? Because I wanted to be able to walk at that park. I wanted to be able to see the sunset. Don't you all want to see that in Chicago? Don't you want to just be able to just walk out at the beach right now and, you know, go to any neighborhood you want, wave to anybody you want? Don't you just want to be able? Doesn't something in your heart say that you should be able to sit on the subway, ladies, and not feel like you're going to be threatened, the L or whatever? Don't you just feel like there's something inside of you that we should be different than this? 
And you see, the world's not hating the right, the right things. They're, they're hating the wrong things. Jesus really taught us how to hate. He taught us how to hate that which was evil. Go ahead now back to the notes. He taught us how to do this. Go to Psalm 45, 7. David, the psalmist, talks about this. And he talks about picking those things that are evil and saying, I hate that. I'm not good with that. We shouldn't just sit back passively in life. That's why um, when someone came out with a book that said the similar sayings of Buddha and Jesus, I was like, yeah, there, there are similar sayings in, in these teachers. That is true. And I believe that points back to the truth that came from God in the Garden of Eden. One race, the human race, as mankind has separated and gone into different cultures and, and places, comparative religion has only shown that we have an original source. Uh, all the rest are copies of a copy of a copy. But Jesus is the answer. Can I hear an amen to that? You're getting a lot today. I hope you're writing this down or at least taking notes or going to go back and uh, listen to this because the world has a lot of things right throughout their cultures. But one of the things that Buddhism has that's totally wrong and that you can't find comparatively in Jesus is that you're supposed to deny all feelings and that finding nirvana is getting free from hate and from love. And then to get free from your thoughts, lastly, how do you get free from your thoughts? I'm thinking about not thinking. I'm thinking about not thinking. Have you ever tried to do that? It's idiocy. And I mean that in all respect to the one point so many billion that believe that. But it's really idiocy. It's foolishness. You're trying to escape your own existence. But you're the one that's existing trying to escape your own existence. You're, you can't escape something unless you exist. You understand? but I'm going to escape my existence. Then you'll no longer exist and you'll no longer be trying to escape. You understand? Do you all see the foolishness of this? But that's the force of, of Star Wars and that's why it's still today you got men in their 30s wearing Jedi pajamas because they've been brought into that worldview. Nothing wrong with watching it, but that's a worldview to say escape everything and find balance that's really the message, by the way, of Star Wars is the balance between the good and the evil, the yin and the yang. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't want you to go numb, escape your existence, and try to walk on rice paper. The God of the Bible wants you to believe for his kingdom to come and his will to be done on this earth as it is in heaven. You and I are called to be world changers, history makers, and roof breakers. We're supposed to change the world for Jesus. We're here to occupy until he comes. Not to go hide away into the Himalayan mountains. When the church imitated the monks and became like those in monasteries, that's when the church went backwards into the dark ages. It's the missionary militant church that changes the world. Not militant in guns and knives and so forth, but as we're building up to today, fighting not against flesh and blood, but against these principalities of wickedness and evil in high places. We don't retreat to the mountains. We don't go away to our prayer huts. We don't take spiritual journeys with Jesus out in the desert taking peyote. I'm going back to my indigenous roots. Well, you'll be demon-possessed like your indigenous people then. Hello. Same thing. People, white people want to go back to the Vikings and get demon-possessed. Latinos want to go back to the Aztec wor worship and get demon-possessed. African-Americans to the east, my brother to the east, want to go back over there to the witch doctors and worshiping trees and get demon-possessed. That's how Jesus found our people, worshiping demons and being possessed by them. 
Come on, can I hear an amen? For anybody that's happy that the gospel has transformed your culture from the worship of demons to the one true God. I'm thankful that my Italiano people aren't worshiping a demon called Zeus. I'm glad that our people are now seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen? Look, listen here to what the Bible says. Psalm 45, 7. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. You want to be brought above just the mess of this world. You're done with being with the turkeys and the chickens. You want to soar on the wings of eagles. You want to be up here where it's high and mighty in the name of the Lord with the power and authority of God. Love righteousness and hate wickedness. And the Bible says we'll stand out among a generation of turkeys and chickens like eagles. Soar on the wings of integrity. Soar on the wings of purity. Dignity. I can't even remember the last time I've even heard that word brought up in a way that would inspire somebody. But dignity. We need to be dignified. The Bible talks about young men. And I know we have a lot of young adults here. The Bible says young men be dignified. Setting an example for others. I understand that we want to be casual, most of us. Most of us don't prefer to dress up. That's okay. But I think if you have looked at your casualness, at being casual in your integrity, you have failed. And if me dressing up in a suit helped you again to uplift yourself, to believe in integrity and dignity, I would dress in a suit again so that you would see yourself as going deeper and, and, and greater than this generation does in integrity and in the things that matter of character. You see, uh, the church did that with well-intentioned motives, dressing up for church. It's the day of the week where we honor God with our best. And I know, like I said, I feel comfortable like this, and this is how I come, but I would change it in 30 seconds if it would help some of you look at yourself differently, that you're coming to church, that you're going to hear the word of the Lord. And I know we keep it on our phone, and I'm not making fun of anybody, but, you know, to hold it again in your hands, you know. This is my Bible. I'm going to church. And people look at you as you walk out your house or your apartment, as you catch the bus or you drive in the, in the neighborhood, they know there's something different about you. As you sit down at work, you hold yourself in integrity because you came to church in integrity. And when they ask you to cheat on your job, you don't do it because you know you've been carrying this book. You know you've been living by this book. Can I hear an amen? See, if some of those traditional things would help, I would say do it. Carry the Bible again in your car. There used to be a time I didn't go anywhere without my Bible. I put up an uh, 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 Instagram reel the other day that says, how do you know if you're Pentecostal? And then I showed uh, inside of my dad's car had a Bible and some oil, some oil in it. I said, that's how you know you're Pentecostal. You bring out that Bible and that oil everywhere you go. My dad's ready, amen? My dad will not be caught off guard in the name of Jesus. You got to hate some stuff if you want to love some stuff. How many people here love purity but hate perversion? How many people here love life but hate death? How many people here love the truth and hate a lie? Amen. You're more and more like Jesus then. Amen. Let's go back to our notes. A few more scriptures in closing here. Now, times in past, God has actually hated people while they've been alive, nations of people. Go to Romans chapter 9, verse 13. God got fed up with the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, and he says, I hate Esau. I'm done with them. God gets to the point where he hands you over to the very thing that you want, and the very thing that you want is what he hates. And if, if, if God hates what you've now become, you're going to hell. 
And so you're going there because you chose it. First and foremost, you chose it. Somebody say, my decision, heaven or hell. Bible's very clear from start to finish. Choose this day whom you will serve. Bible goes through choices like that. Seek God while he may be found. The Bible's very clear. You have a choice. But at the same time, God has a consequence. So you and I have a choice, but God has a what? A consequence. So when I say, who sends who to hell? And we teach here about free will, and you go, well, I've sent, you know, a person will send themselves there. I'll send myself there if I make that wrong decision. That's true, and that's half of it, but what's the other side of it? God also kicks the boot, uh, gets, gives you the boot right into hell. So it's both and. If someone doesn't want God, that's first and foremost their choice. Now God tells people where you go when you don't want me. You don't want me. There's no other choice. There's not another place other than heaven, and you said you don't want heaven, so where do you go? You go to hell. So it's both ends. Does everybody get that? But we always like to emphasize in this church human responsibility, response-able, responsibility. Your response is able to be positive towards God or negative. You are response-able, responsible. Can I hear an amen? How many just learned what that word meant? Come on, some of you never thought of it that way. You are response-able. You are able to respond one way or another towards God. But you can get to a point where you or a person has rejected God, now the judgment comes and that person or that nation is still on the earth. And now when we say God loves everybody, we have to say, well, not everybody. <laughs> it's kind of like when people say, just come as you are. Oh, not really, you can't come naked. <laughs> you can come to the door naked, we'll put something on you, but you're not going to come sitting around here naked. You understand what I'm saying? Well, the church accepts everybody. Uh, no, we don't. The church shooter is not accepted here. How many know they shoot up churches these days? You're not accepted here as a child molester church shooter. But if you want to repent of church shooting, then please come. If you want to repent of child molesting, please come. But in the act of it, you're not welcome here. Amen? And the same thing is with God. You don't get to do what you want with God any old which way and expect to go to heaven. And even while on earth, some people God deals with, he says, I hate them, and I'm done with them. Just as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Now it gets into a whole discussion about how God can do this kind of stuff. And this is where when we went into John chapter 6 and discussed Calvinism, these are the best arguments that Calvinists make. John chapter 6 and here in Romans chapter 9. And then they say, see, it proves it. Sinners are doomed from the womb. God always hated them. He only saved those he loved. Those he hates go to hell. That's the way it works. And they missed the entire point here. The entire point is not that God chose who would be hated individually, it's that God chose how he would hate, and individuals decide whether or not to be in that group that he hates. I'm going to say that slowly because I only got about four amens. I need the rest of you to hear this. If I say to you, I hate uh, chocolate mint ice cream, okay, and we go to your house, and af after we eat, have dessert, you bring me chocolate mint ice cream, right? Should you take it personal if I just look at you and look back at it and you don't see me eating it. Should you take it personal? You shouldn't. You, you should ask me, well, why don't you eat this? Some of you are saying, yes, I would take it personal because you come from a different generation. You're supposed to eat whatever's put in front of you. Eat it until you puke. I know. That's, my parents taught me that too. And I did. I learned my lesson in India because I ate it until I puked. Seriously. I almost threw up, and I don't mean to be gross, at the table where I was eating it. And then I talked to them, and I just said, in India, I was like, man, look, can I be real? I just had to go to the bathroom and throw up. Can you help me not eat that again? Because otherwise 
I won't be able to preach to you anymore. And then they're like, yeah, man, we understand because there's stuff we don't eat. So even there, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing because, like, we were taught as missionaries, always just eat whatever's in front of you. But I think we've moved a little bit past that time because these people have phones and computers, and they have their own taste. And they were even like, yeah, I don't eat some of that stuff you were eating. Seriously, they were telling me that. They're like, I don't even eat some of that stuff. Like, that's not where I go on the plate, you know, because they had this buffet in front of me. They're like, I don't touch that. I used to go to my friend. He was Korean, and his mom would make stuff that only I would eat, and he used to say that about me all the time. He said, this white boy eats stuff that I don't even eat from Korea. Seriously, his mom would take out these little minnows and lay them out in the sun, and they'd become dry, and they would eat them like potato chips. And he's like, man, that's gross. I'm like, tell your mom to get more minnows, dude. Have you ever had a minnow like that that's been... been Heat baked by the sun, you can crunch on it like it's a potato, a, a potato chip. Try it sometime, amen. But going back to this, people say, oh, well, this is God's decision. God made this decision. No, no, no. It was man's decision. Man makes a decision. But listen, God tells you what he'll hate. So listen, you make the decision now if I come to your house, whether or not you serve the chocolate mint ice cream. It's up to you. See, I've already told you what I hate. I hate it. I don't like it. That's not what I, when my wife doesn't feel like sharing ice cream with me, guess, guess what she gets at Baskin Robbins. That's what she gets when she knows that she, she wants to eat it all. She doesn't want me to touch it. That's what she gets because she knows I made up my mind. That's what I hate. You see, you don't have to be hated by God. God has made up his mind about what he hates and what he loves. If you look at the Bible, you can see he loves righteousness, he hates wickedness. So he's not as the Calvinist choosing to hate you personally. He is choosing to hate the decision towards wickedness. Now, does God know the whole plan from the beginning? Yes, he does. But it's still your choice. Can I hear an amen? Now, going back to the notes quickly here. And God at times has allowed people to hate other people. Psalm 119. Uh, let's go to Psalm 139, verse 21. Everybody go, ooh, hate in the Bible? I thought we loved everybody. Do you think when we were dropping bombs on Hiroshima, we loved everybody? Come on. There's time for war and there's a time for peace. The Bible says there's a time for love and there's a time for hate. David said this. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now we're going to get into a discussion over what David was doing here. David was doing one of two things, I think, and you can research this on your own. He was speaking from the heart of God towards those in judgment. So what he is saying prophetically is on the day of judgment, he will point out the sinners and hate them just like God will hate them, and he will not be shedding tears for those going to hell. That's an option. Or the other option is, is that God allowed him as a king representing Christ on earth to hate how he hates and inflict judgment that then would bring hellfire. In other words, in the Old Testament, when they killed you, the Israelites, you also went to hell. So there was real war, and when you died, you didn't just die in a battle, you went to hell. This was not just a Braveheart type thing. There were eternal consequences in messing with God's people. Can I hear an amen? So that's a discussion for you to take up with the Lord in prayer. Is David speaking to those in judgment that are, you know, in heaven prophetically? And as we all will be there, saying to those, that's the one time it's going to be okay to curse, you will be cursing them with God, saying, go to hell. 
How many know saying go to hell now is a sin? You're not supposed to put people in hell. You don't have that right or authority, and we're going to get to the, to, to the ending here where Jesus says even love your enemies, but i got to work you through the word so you can get it. If you say now someone go to hell, you're cursing them, you're, you're speaking ill against them in that way, and you shouldn't do that. But how many know on Judgment Day, when Jesus is giving sinners the boot, we're all saying the curse of Jesus to them. We're all in agreement. We're all putting our amen with them. Can I hear an amen to that? No Christian on Judgment Day will be like, stop. Stop the horsemen. What's going on? Jesus comes over on his white horse. What's going on? Well, Jesus, just stop it. Just stop the judgment. No, 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 no. You'll be on a white horse with Jesus. Amen? Okay. So do I not hate those who hate you? We see in the Bible, this is how it can be played out, either as a final judgment in heaven or hell, you know, looking at judgment time, or David in acting as a king righteous judgment upon the enemies of God. Now let's go in closing. How are we supposed to do this? Go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Lawrence, would you come, please? I know I've gone a little bit longer than I should have, but I hope you've been blessed today. How many have been blessed today? This was something God put in my heart. Thank you. We give all glory and honor to God because uh, it was just a unique thing that came out of this passage. I have never seen it the way I saw it, and I wanted to be honest and preach it to you because the world is hating the wrong way and the wrong thing. Jesus said, you have heard it said, or rather he said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Well, where would they get an idea like that? Probably from reading into the statements we just had. This was not a Bible quote. Uh, most of the time when Jesus uh, is saying, you have heard it said, it goes back directly to the Bible. This was a cultural quote. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. And they have looked at scholars, as scholars to where this came from, from the rabbis, where, where was this made popular. So Jesus says, you've heard that, and you've probably gotten that from reading the Old Testament and hearing David talk and seeing my judgments and understanding what I hate. He says, you've heard that, but I want to clarify that to you. This is how Jesus wants to clarify it to us. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is the higher standard. You see, we're not in a time of David inflicting the righteous judgment of God on sinners to go to hell. We may have to hate what sinners do, and inflict judgment in war, but even there, I would say, go beyond hating just the individual and praying for them to be safe so they'll surrender. Save us the time. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And watch this here. This is beautiful. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. How many know the White House had the sun rise on it today? Come on. God does it for the evil. How many know over Congress the sun still signs? Amen. How many know over even over the most wicked a trap house or corrupt businessmen the sun's still shining today? So God is giving them a chance to repent. We should pray for those in leadership, not just, you know, protest or rebuke them. We should pray for them to be saved because salvation will bring about the most change. If you have a wicked boss, yes, report him, do all that you can, but also pray for him to get saved. 
If you see a tragedy in the world, as we've talked about here today, don't just stand up against it in righteous anger. Also pray for those who are promoting it to get saved. When I was showing my children the persecution around the world, I, I found a video that said, former Hindu that persecuted Christians becomes a Christian. See, those are the kinds of things that we want to see. Just like how in our lives we have testimonies. I, I was a violent, uh, a violent church kid that grew up in church, but then I did all these wicked and evil things, arrested eight times, you know. But Jesus saved me because somebody was praying for me. I used to persecute Christians, but now I'm a Christian. That's how we should be. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the, right, and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, then what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? Are not even the corrupt politicians doing that? Don't even the gangs love the people who wear their colors and rep their sets? Isn't that just how the world is? Isn't that just how Republicans are? Isn't that just how Democrats are? They love their own. And if you only greet your people, what are you doing more than others? How many were there two weeks ago? We were on the west side, and I went and greeted the black Hebrew Israelites. Who was with me? See? Did we just greet our people? No, we greeted them. And then what did they want? To only greet their people. They literally said to us, we're only here for our people. They're exactly, as the Bible says, a Pharisee. We came to greet you, not our people in that way. In another religion, we came to greet you. When I meet people of other religions, I say like Muslims, assalamu alaikum, my Hindu neighbors, namaste, which just means, you know, peace to you in their language. And I've, you know, looked at how I can greet them and honor them. Even though I disagree with them, I love them. They give us one finger, we give them two fingers. Amen. Don't even pagans do that. Now look at verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Can we stand up and give it up for Jesus today, the God of love? I'm looking at second service leaders. They're deciding if they love me right now. Second service is like, come on, pastor. It's like three minutes to go here. Abandon altar work, would you come, please? First service, I appreciate you this morning. I hope that we've been challenged by that message because there wasn't one passage that I brought extra to you that didn't challenge me. 